Well, good morning. <laughs> Today is International Women's Day. And so it is a celebration of women. It is a remembrance of something of 15,000 women marching and descending on the streets of New York in, uh, in a fight for equality and... Uh, And it's a, it's a good thing to celebrate. You know, as, as this morning, we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus raising Lazarus, Lazarus or the account of Jesus raising Lazarus. And what I'm always impressed with is with the high regard with which Jesus treats women. Throughout Scripture, Jesus holds women with much esteem. Uh, and, and so certainly today... Uh, we see it in how Jesus operates and how he treats women, and so certainly it is something that we should also emulate and strive for. That is not in my notes. It was just something that came to me today. And, uh, but, uh, so it's a good day to celebrate. Celebrate the women in your life. Your moms, your sisters, your friends, and uh, it's a good thing. But my name is Chris. <laughs> we'll get off onto my notes and off my ramblings. And I have the privilege of serving here as the pastor, and so if you're new with us or if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're going to be concluding our series entitled Believe, and uh, for the last two months or so, we've been looking at the signs or the miracles that Jesus performed as they are recorded by John. And so this morning, as I said, we're going to be looking at the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And ultimately, this miracle will mark the closing of Jesus' public ministry in the eyes of John. And so after this miracle, John will not record any of Jesus' miracles. I mean, he only records seven of them, other than Jesus' death and resurrection. And so this is the last one that John is going to focus on. And from this point on, John is actually going to shift his focus into the more intimate and deeper relationship between Jesus and his disciples. And so we're going to begin to see Jesus and his disciples and what is called the upper room discourse. And so for the next few weeks after this morning, this is what we're going to be focusing on as well. As we're leading up to the, the days and the weeks before Easter, we're going to follow Jesus and his disciples in this intimate setting. And ultimately, we know that uh, Jesus is headed for the cross. And Jesus is going to be crucified. And, and through his crucifixion, there is the atonement of our sins. And then days later, we get to celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday. His glorious defeat over sin and death. And so, for, for many of us, this... Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is actually a turning point in the lives of the followers of Jesus. Because they are now moving from that public sphere, that, that place where Jesus is acting and he's bringing people, he's inviting people into a, a relationship with him. He's inviting, inviting them to believe, to go all in. And then he shifts into this time where now you believe, let, let's spend time, let me speak to you. Let me teach you truth. Let me prepare you for what is to come. And all of this really is John's point. 
This is his whole purpose in writing his gospel. He's wanted us to come to this place where we will believe. In John 30, he says this, he says, or John chapter 20, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is John's desire is that we would go from a place where we have no recollection of who, or understanding of who Jesus is. We're, we're maybe vaguely familiar that he is a man or that he might be a prophet to moving in, into this place where we have come to believe that he is, in fact, who he says he is. You will remember if you've been here for a while that that word believe is the word pastuo, which really is translated, it's that image of going all in or complete trust and complete surrender. That's what it means to believe. Anywhere you see the word believe in the New Testament, maybe not absolutely everywhere, but most of those places, you can swap that in. The word trust. The word surrender. This is John's desire for us, that as we surrender our lives to Jesus, we would actually find life. And we would find life in his name. As we get into the passage this morning, Jesus is going to make a a number of powerful statements. And the reality is, is that we're not actually going to be able to go dig into all of them this morning. His statement, I am the resurrection and the life, we could spend weeks and months or years even just focusing on that and the fullness of what it means. But there's one phrase that really stood out to me as I was reading through the scriptures, as I was preparing for this message. It just kept coming up over and over again. And it's a phrase that Jesus, or it's a statement that Jesus makes even before he's raised Lazarus from the dead. And he says this, he says in John eleven forty, 40, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Long before he raises Lazarus from the dead. Not long before, but right before he does. This is his statement to the people. And it's a statement that is made to us as well. I invite you, we're going to turn to our scriptures in a moment, and we're going to be looking at John chapter 11. But as we turn to the scriptures, let's just take a moment and let's pause and let's pray. So Father, we come to you this morning and we have worshipped you. We have sung praises to you. Lord, we long and we desire to glorify your name to surrender our lives to you. Jesus, you are in fact the Messiah, the Son of God. And so we worship you. Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, we invite you to be a present in our midst. The word says that you will illuminate Scripture to us, to our hearts. And so would you do that this morning, Holy Spirit? Would you come? Would you be present in us? Would you fill us afresh today? 
that we might hear your word, that we would be drawn to you and you alone, Lord. And may you be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to John chapter 11. And of course, it will be on the screen. But this is John chapter 11. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn mourn there. 
When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And this is the word of the Lord. I am always amazed every time I read this story about the depth and the, and the fullness of what is happening here. And so what I want to do, I want to briefly look at the context in which we find this miracle. And so to do that, I want to take you back just a little bit back into John chapter 10 again. And as an aside, I would encourage you, when you read the Bible, when you read the Gospels, don't read them like one chapter at a time. Read it as a story that flows or the account that flows because it is, it is one narrative. This is the truth in the Gospel and it's the fullness and if we just take it as individual stories, I mean, we do this in Sunday school, and, it, and it's good because our kids need to know this, but if you just treat the Bible like a Sunday school lesson, you miss out on the fullness of the context. And so I want to take you back just briefly into John chapter 10, and, and John chapter 10 is a, a famous chapter as well. It's where Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd. And in this moment, he, he's begun, he's just shared this whole account about how his sheep know his voice and they listen to him. And then it comes to a point where Jesus is walking in the temple and the religious leaders come to him. And they confront him and they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus, just tell us outright, are you the Messiah or are you not the Messiah? To which Jesus responds in John chapter 10, verse 25, he says, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you did not believe because you are not my sheep. Everything I have done testifies that I am the Messiah. This is what Jesus is telling them. 
And so he gets into a boat and he actually begins, he sails once again across the Jordan. And this is sort of Jesus' pattern. He gets in a boat and he'll travel, he crosses back and forth over the Jordan to different areas so that he can minister. And he travels back to the place where his ministry began. To the place where John was baptizing his disciples. And this is where Jesus first encounters his disciples. And so Jesus is there and he's ministering to people. And it's at this point that news about Lazarus' sickness comes to him. Now outside of the, the, the circle of the disciples, Jesus had some very close friends. And among them were these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And so when Lazarus becomes so sick, he gets to the point where Mary and Martha are actually concerned. This is not just a common cold. This is not something that he will get over. This is something that they are fearing for his life. And so they send word to Jesus. And if they can get news to Jesus soon enough, maybe he will come and he will be able to heal Lazarus. And as we enter into the account, we read that when news finally does reach Jesus, we actually know that Jesus was quite a distance away at this point. Some scholars have estimated that Jesus was more than 20 miles away. And so from the time that Mary and Martha sent the news to Jesus, and when it arrived, it would have been a, at least a day, maybe two. And news arrives to Jesus, and he hears this, and initially he doesn't come. And this kind of leaves us a little bit confused, I think. It leaves me confused. Why would Jesus wait? Why doesn't Jesus act? Perhaps you've thought the same things in your own life. Jesus, why didn't you move? Why didn't you show up when we called you? After receiving the news, he waits two full days. And then after those two additional days, he decides, all right, now it is time for us to go. And he brings his disciples with him. And they begin the journey back to Bethany. And upon arriving in Bethany, Jesus learns that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. Now for the Jews, this was significant. This was not a coincidence. And so what you need to understand is that the cultural belief of the Jews in this day and, and the practice that was taught by ancient rabbis was this, is that a person's soul hung around for three days. So if you were dead for three days, it was possible that you could come back to life because really your soul hadn't left. It was just sort of hanging around. But after four days, the soul left permanently. This is what they believed. And so after four days of being dead, you were dead. You were dead, dead. You were dead, 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 dead. There was no coming back. And they would wrap the body in the strips of linen and they would place them in the tomb. And, and by four days in the hot climate, not like Ontario, after four days of being in the ground, we would have just been like preserved, right? Like, that's like freezers. But for there, it would have, that was like an oven. 
and his body would have stunk. There was no coming back. And so we find Mary and Martha, and they are mourning. And they were observing the Jewish tradition of Shiva. And this, the word Shiva literally means seven. And so it was a week-long mourning ritual that the Jews observed. And so whenever a family member died, you would gather in your house and you would mourn. There was specific clothing you had to wear. They had specific rules. And so the Shiva typically began on the day that the body was buried. So the day that Lazarus was placed in the tomb began the, the process of mourning for Mary and Martha. And they would have mourned for seven days. It was meant so that they could observe and experience and express their grief. And at the end of those seven days, the, the expectation was that they had expressed their grief and that they would return to life as normal. They would re-engage with society. But just like the Sabbath, the Jews had developed all these rules and regulations around what, how, you, how you did Shiva. The things you could and could not do. In fact, there's all these things. If, if Shiva happened during the middle of your Sabbath, you would stop. Or if it happened during the middle of a celebration, you had to stop mourning. And you had to be joyful during that celebration. And then when the celebration was done, you could return to your mourning. But some of the other rules included you couldn't wear leather shoes. And the expectation was that you would remain in your house for all seven days. You would not leave. And so, while Mary and, and Martha are grieving, they're in the, in the process of observing Shiva, and it tells us that many Jews came to mourn with them. And it's at this point that Jesus enters into their grief. And as Jesus enters into their grief, we experience two very different responses. And so we have the response of Martha, and then we have the response of Mary, and, and tied closely to it is the response of the other Jews. And so I want to focus a little bit on their responses and just how Jesus responds to them. So in, in light of Martha's response, how does Jesus respond back? In light of Mary's response, how does Jesus respond? How does he respond to their faith or their lack of? And as another aside, as you read the encounter of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, that we certainly can place ourselves in the position of Lazarus. And it is a powerful reminder that it is in fact Jesus who raises us from death to life. But this morning I want to focus on their responses. And we're going to begin with the response of Martha. Because she's the first one who responds to Jesus. She's the first one who runs out to meet him. As soon as she hears that Jesus is there, and he's, even, he's not even there yet. He's not even at her home. He's not even at the tomb. Mary, or Martha finds out Jesus has come, and she runs out to find him. And this is significant for two reasons. The first one is you might remember another event with Mary and Martha. You remember that Jesus has come and he's in their home 
And Mary is seated at the feet of Jesus and she is learning from him. And yet Martha, this, one, this woman who has run out to Jesus, was the one who was busy preparing all of the, the necessities for the meal. And she gets frustrated and she comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, tell her to help me. She was a busybody. She didn't have this, the opportunity. She didn't even think about coming and sit, sit, sitting, there we go, at Jesus' feet. And yet, in this moment, she is the first one to run to Jesus. It's also significant because Martha is breaking the rules of Shiva. The rule was, you stay in your house, you mourn. And yet, when Jesus shows up, all of that pales in comparison to her faith and her trust in him. And so when she runs out, she finally arrives at Jesus, and this is what she says to him. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Mary, or Mary, Martha, side note, why do we always name our kids the same, like, so close? Anyways, Martha has this hope. She runs out and she sets aside her grief and her mourning because there is Jesus and he can act. Even now, even though Lazarus has been dead for four days, Jesus could do something. And so when Jesus responds to her, he says, Lazarus will, will rise. And Martha responds with almost like a Sunday school answer. And what I mean by that is, is it's an answer that we know is true, but really lacks kind of conviction and, and, and faith that it will happen. It's like the, the, the Sunday school answer is always Jesus. To any question your Sunday school teachers ask, it's Jesus somehow. And that's sort of the, the feeling we get from Martha. Well, Jesus, I know that Lazarus will rise again. It'll happen in the resurrection. But Jesus doesn't scold her. This is what I love. Jesus doesn't condemn her. He doesn't belittle her. He doesn't make her feel bad for her lack of conviction or belief. In fact, he, he encourages her. He goes for her heart and he says this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. This to me is, is both a powerful statement but is also a tender statement to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And Martha responds by saying, I believe. I believe that you are the Messiah. You are the one who saves. You are the Son of God who has come into the world. And you see, Martha responds with faith. 
She believes that Jesus can act even when she doesn't know how. And as a response to her faith, Jesus comforts her and makes a powerful, profound declaration about the truth of who he is. I am life. Jesus is not just a good teacher. Jesus is not just a a prophet. Jesus is, in fact, the embodiment of the resurrection. He is the embodiment of life. He is life. And Martha gets to see that. She gets to understand that. At this point, Martha runs to Mary. I feel like there's an excitement in Martha at this point. She's still not certain how Jesus is going to act, but there is something that wells up within her, and she runs to Mary And so Mary, like Martha, now runs to Jesus. And so we see the response of Mary and the the other Jews. And at the out front, at the beginning of it, it looks as though Martha and Mary have the same response. They ask Jesus the same, or they make the same statement. They say this. And so as Mary falls at the feet of Jesus, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not or would not have died. This is the same words that Martha had spoken not too long ago. And Mary comes and she declares this, Jesus, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. But Mary's statement seems to have a little bit less faith than that of Martha. Unlike Martha who believed that Jesus could somehow even now do something, Mary begins to weep. She is still caught up in her grief and her, and her hopelessness. She is convinced that there is no hope for Lazarus. Similarly to Mary, we, we see the Jews. And the Jews are also weeping. And John tells us that many of these Jews had come to mourn with Mary and Martha and that they had come from Jerusalem because Jerusalem was only about two miles away And what scholars have told us is likely that many of these Jews would have been among the religious leaders. So they may have been Pharisees, they may have been friends. There's a whole host of people who would have been there. And so some of the Jews that were there were the religious leaders. These were the same men who had condemned Jesus before. Who did not believe in the miracles that he had performed. And like Mary, they are weeping, they are crying. And I don't know if they were there, if, it was, if it was, they were truly grieving and mourning the loss of Lazarus, or if this was just something that you do. This was a little bit of that religiousness that comes out. Well, I, I have mourned for those who have lost. I don't know. But here they are. They're, they're surrounding Mary and Martha, and they are weeping with them. And all of a sudden, Mary has gotten up, and she has run out. And they're a little bit taken back, and maybe she's running to the tomb. And so they follow her. And they follow her, and when she is at the feet of Jesus, the Jews are there, and they are weeping. And as John tells us, Jesus looks at them, and it says that he saw them weeping. He saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. 
And it's more than just that they were crying. It was almost as if they were wailing and sobbing. There are some times when Isaiah will do this, when he gets so emotional that it's no longer just a cry, it's a full-out wail of a cry. And it's a little bit over-dramatized, and, and I mean, he's a child, so he doesn't know better. But this is the image that we have of the Pharisees and the Jews that are with them, as they are weeping and they were wailing and they're making almost a spectacle of it. And as Jesus begins to move towards the tomb, as, as he asks, where has Lazarus been raised, or laid? And they say, come and see. And they lead him to the, t- to the tomb. And Jesus is weeping. They look upon him almost with like doubt and suspicion. Some of them say, well, look, he loved Lazarus. He's, he's just human, just like the rest of us. But some were doubting him, saying, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And so some of these people, as I said, were there when, when there was this argument over who Jesus was when the blind man told the story of who had healed him. And so now the, the same men and women who have said, You surely are not the Messiah, are acknowledging that Jesus did, in fact, heal the blind man. But they are questioning his power. Well, if he could have done that, then surely he could have healed Lazarus. And Lazarus wouldn't have died. And so in Mary, we have someone who sat at the feet of Jesus. And who learned from Jesus, but she didn't quite put her full trust in him. And in the Jews, we see those who continued to doubt. (coughs) Those who had seen Jesus perform powerful signs and wonders, and yet they still continued to question. And they continued to doubt. I wonder which of these responses do you most resonate with? I was struggling with that myself, trying to put myself in the scenario, in the situation. If I was there, who would I have been most like? Would I have been like Martha who who believed, Jesus, you can act. Even though it seems impossible, I know that you can intervene. Would I have been like Mary who I believed, I've sat at your feet, Jesus, but I just think it's hopeless. Or would I have been like the Jews and just, are you sure, Jesus? Are you really who you say you are? And so who do you most resonate with? But the question is, how does Jesus respond to Mary and the Jews? John tells us that Jesus looked upon Mary and the Jews as they were weeping. And it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was troubled. Now, unlike many of Jesus' other miracles, where John tells us that Jesus saw the person, I'm always floored by this, is that Jesus sees them and he has compassion. He is moved to act. But the word that that John uses for deeply moved is not the word compassion. It's a word that's actually only used five times in the New Testament. And it's a word that is, could be literally translated to snort with anger. 
Have you ever done this? Or to groan in frustration or with rebuke. It's a scoff. And then when Jesus said, or when John says that Jesus was troubled, it, he is saying that Jesus was shaken, that Jesus was agitated. It's the same word that John uses to describe the pool of Bethsaida that is being stirred in John chapter 5. When the angel, when they believed that the angel would come down and stir and agitate the waters and the first person in would be healed, that's the same word that John is using here. It's that stirred up, it's shaken, it's agitated. It's the same word that, that Jesus will use later in John chapter 14 when he tells his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't get worked up. Don't get agitated. And so Jesus was shaken and he was upset. This is, this is his response. And I think it's mostly to the Jews and their lack of belief and understanding that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was. He's frustrated that they haven't caught on yet. Taking it back to John chapter 10, when, when they question him, why haven't you shown us? And he's like, I did tell you. All of the things that I have done reveal that I am, in fact, the Son of God. Are you still so dense? That you cannot get it. <laughs> yes, yes we are. I heard that. And so Jesus goes and he, he tells them, where have you put him? Where have you laid Lazarus? And he commands them to move the stone that is covering the tomb and he looks up and he gives thanks to the Father. He gives thanks to the Father because the Father has already heard him. And then in a loud voice, he calls out to Lazarus. Lazarus, come out! St. Augustine is credited with having said this, that if Jesus had not said Lazarus' name, all would have come out from the grave. There is power in the words of Jesus and in his declaration. He is the Son of God and he has the power to raise people from the dead. And in that moment, Jesus demonstrates with authority what he declared to Martha. He is both the resurrection and the life. This is who he is. So what does that mean for us? John tells us that his desire is that we would believe. That we would go all in, that we would surrender completely, and that we would trust completely. In every single one of Jesus' miracles, there are signs or wonders or declarations over who he is, there is an invitation for us. There is an invitation to move from where we are into a deeper place of trust and belief in him. Wherever you are this morning, there is an invitation to take it to the next level of trust and faith in Jesus. Because by his words and, and by his actions, 
He has proven and declared that He is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God. Some of you may have heard this story, but about two weeks before Christmas, a little girl named Olive went to bed, only to not wake up in the morning. Olive's parents are worship leaders at a church in Redding, California, and they began to pray to the Lord. They, they were asking and they were interceding and they were begging the Lord to resurrect their little girl. They believed that her life was not yet done. That God still wanted to do more through her. And so for more than a week, people from all around the world began to pray. They began to intercede for the family and for, with the family for little Olive's resurrection. Now, I don't know where you stand on this, and, and I wrestle with it myself. Is praying to, to resurrect a little girl standing against God's sovereignty? I don't know. And I'm not here to argue one way or the other for that, but what impressed me was as I was following this, I read the statement that was released by their church as to why they were doing this. And this is what they said. They said, since learning the news of two-year-old Olive's sudden death, we have sought a miracle from God to raise her from the dead. We realize this is out of the norm, but that's what a miracle is. It is outside the box of nature and our power. As the Bible testifies, God is the God of the reasonable, the probable, and the possible, as well as the God of the unreasonable, the improbable, and the impossible. In this process, we have been asking God to fulfill our heart's desire to see his kingdom manifested in great power. When you are a friend of God and know that he is your heavenly father, you trust him and ask for big, outlandish miracles. As a church, we've been contending for, singing about, and witnessing God's power to save, heal, and deliver for over 50 years. It is normal for us to ask for things, to trust him, and then to glorify his name regardless of the outcome. This is what life with the king is all about. What a bold declaration. This is what life with the king is all about. And then as I was thinking about this as I followed it on social media and seeing the names and the people who were standing with this church and with this family for this resurrection, I was amazed by their faith and their trust. That they were displaying and putting on display what they believed was possible through Jesus alone. That Jesus could raise this girl from the dead. And they had this faith that would not be shaken even if he didn't. And that's what astounds me is that they contended for a miracle to happen and they did not waver in their faith even if Jesus would not. In the end, the girl was not raised from the dead and I'm certain that the family continues to mourn. But I know that their faith in Jesus has not wavered. And it was through those prayers that I witnessed a faith and a trust that Jesus was, in fact, who he says he is. That Jesus is both resurrection and life. 
And I saw people who were not afraid to move into deeper places of faith and trust and belief in Jesus. And they did so personally and they did so corporately. I like when Pete Scazzaro, he says this, he says, we can't learn trust secondhand. We can't learn belief secondhand. We can't learn it from a book or a sermon. You have to learn it from life. You have to learn it by doing it. Unfortunately, most people are content to have a secondhand relationship with Jesus. They are content in having a secondhand belief in him. We live off of other people's faith and trust and spirituality. We go to church, but we don't have time to actually put our faith and our trust in Him through spiritual practices and disciplines. We might outwardly declare it, but do we believe that Jesus will act? Do we live our lives as though Jesus is moving? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Believe in the Lord. Go all in. Surrender completely to him with all your heart. And so how do we grow our trust? How do we move to a place where we believe that Jesus is in fact who he says he is? It's by leaning into those places where we will experience him. It's by stepping out even when it seems irrational and unreasonable and impossible. It's like being like Martha. When it's, we look at the story of Mary and Martha and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, we want to say, be like Mary. But in this case, it's be like Martha. In the, face of all that, in the face of all that seems impossible, do you have faith that Jesus can still move? Even when we don't know how. It reminds me of something Charles Spurgeon once said as well, and it's this. It says, to trust God in the light is nothing. To trust him in the dark, that is faith. And I'll be honest, I, I've been wrestling with that quote a little bit as well. I believe it to be true. It's when all hope seems to be lost, when things seem to be impossible, that we need to have our faith and trust in him. And yet, sometimes I think it's the, having a faith and a trust in God when it is, things are easy is harder. Because it's so easy to get caught up in thinking that it's all about me. It's all about the good things that I have done. And sure, having faith is easy because there's nothing to it because things are going good. But that, for me, is when it's the hardest. When there's nothing challenging me. But it is trusting him in the dark. It is trusting him when all seems impossible. Surrendering completely. And then Jesus captures the truth perfectly. In verse 40 when he says, Did I not tell you 
that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Even before Lazarus is raised from the dead, God's glory is on display. Have you seen the glory of God? If you trust Him completely, if you surrender fully, when you go all in, you will, in fact, see His glory. As we close this morning, I want to invite you just to declare that with me, this verse. And so would you say it with me? Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? One more time. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this, this afternoon, this morning, and we acknowledge that you are God. Jesus, that you are the Son of God, that through you, you are the resurrection and you are the life. And so may we come and may we put our faith and our trust in you. May we believe in you. And Lord, we know that as we surrender to you, as we trust in you, we will see your glory. Not just in signs and wonders, but in who you are. Not in our strength, not in our power, but by your might. By your strength. Lord Jesus, may we have a faith like Mary. A faith that says, I don't know what is happening. I don't know what is going on. I don't know what you are doing, Jesus, but I know that you will act. And I know that you are good. And may we surrender completely to you. And may you be glorified, Jesus. Amen.